if you're batting a hundred percent on all your like points of view, like you're not you're not trying hard enough, right? You're working on stuff that's too easy. This is Aaron May. I'm John Henry Forster, and this is awkward. Silence. Silences. <laughs> Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Awkward Silences. We are here today with Alec Levin, and he is one of the co-founders of the UXR Collective Strive Conference that just happened recently in Toronto. Um, This is a conference that started as a meetup and that we've been hearing awesome things about from our client community. And so we wanted to pick Alec's brain about what's going on with UX research right now and what do we want to see happening in the future. So thanks so much for joining us, Alec. It's my pleasure to be here. That was a very flattering introduction. I'll take it. All right. Uh, JH is here as well. Yeah, I'm having some serious uh, FOMO about this conference. We keep hearing about it. So um, I know. I got to get there next year for sure. All right. On that note, so today we're going to talk about, uh, I, I'm excited about this one. So failure is so hot right now, right? If you um, read up or participate in any of the startup dialogue and um, and that's a good thing. Uh, but we don't hear as much about failure in terms of being a leader within the UX research space. And so Alec is opening, I think, a cool conversation about um, how we can be braver in our methods and our approach to UX research and the sense of seek to fail so that you can um, learn what you really think. Um, so Alec, this whole idea came up, we were talking about, you get a lot of applications for people who want to talk about a variety of things uh, at the Strive UXR conference. And uh, we were talking about what are you seeing? What are you not seeing? So talk, talk to me about what you aren't seeing and why we need to hear more talk about failure. Yeah, pretty much everyone who spoke at the conference uh, spoke through our like public speaker application form, which is cool. So we got a lot of, got to see what was on a lot of people's minds. And very happy to say that we're like, moving past the whole like stakeholder management is like our key <laughs> talking point um, part of research. I think that 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 course is, has been beaten to death a few times and we're starting to move into some some newer topics and s- some of the themes that uh, really came through this year was the one of the main ones was is it okay as a researcher to have a point of view or is my job to be like objective. And I think a lot of people are starting to think that, you know, it's okay for me to come into the room with the, with an opinion based on the evidence that I've gathered. And I think that's great. One of the ones areas that I'm really hoping to see more conversation about is like you said, like just being more comfortable with being incorrect about things. So it's wonderful that now we're starting to talk about having a point of view and fighting for that point of view. Um, based on our interpretations of what we're seeing in, in the field. Um, but even if you just think about how much growth the research space has had in a really short amount of time, um, from really being these old school usability labs, <laughs> lab coats, white drywall, and a two-way mirror, like, you know, that was the reality for quite a while. 
to something that's a lot more sort of embedded in people's lives with these ethnographic approaches, um, spending time visiting people and, and where they work and live and all that kind of stuff. And so even in just in a short amount of time, we've seen the field evolve a lot. And as new platforms emerge, right, new, new interfaces come out, it's going to require new methods. It's going to require new thinking. Um, and I think it's important for us to challenge ourselves to, you know, as we try these things out, you know, to have a, with limited information, have, take a point of view and, and try some stuff and see if it fails, like, and write about it and tell other people what you think. And, you know, maybe find out that you didn't know all that you did and that your point of view was wrong, but that's great. That's a learning opportunity for everyone. When you say failure in the UX research sense, is it, I went in with an opinion and we learned that that opinion was wrong. And so now we're smarter based on the feedback we learned. Or are you suggesting more of like, we tried this new technique or we came up with a new method to try to get some insights and we didn't learn anything because it didn't work? Or is it both? Or I guess I'm just trying to kind of double down on what failure means in this context. It's, it's a great question. I, th I think it's both. But I mean, I think the way, at least the way a lot of the startup world talks about failure is, let's say, borderline unhealthy. Um, you know, like strive to burn yourself out by working 800 hours a week and it's not working out and then that's okay. And that's what failure looks like. I think it's, it's, I would even just pivot it to saying it's, it's kind of like, it's okay to be wrong. Um, so whether that's, you know, maybe you were lacking some context that you weren't aware of. Um, and when you go into a meeting arguing for a point of view, someone else in the room brings up some work that they did that you might not have known about that changes your point of view. I think it's still good to go into that room arguing for what you think. Um, and the same thing with, the, with on the method side. Uh, all these methods were designed by fallible human beings. And it's sometimes easy to get swept up in, you know, this is the right way of doing things. And at some point it became the right way of doing things perhaps, but I'm sure before that there were many iterations of it that were less right, let's say. Uh, I remember one thing for me was, I, 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 and perhaps other people have had different experience, but learning to become a researcher in Toronto, there was, seemed to be a consensus that in order to do an interview, you needed like a pretty thorough script and you had to stick to that script in order for it to be, you know, um, in order for it to be good research, in order for it to be, uh, what's the word mm -hmm. I'm looking for? have efficacy. And I think that has kind of changed in the last few years where we realized like, eh, you know, qualitative research requires a lot of interpretation anyway, and building trust is really important. And it's really hard to build trust if you're reading from mm -hmm. a piece of paper in front of a, a uh, you know, a research participant. So, you know, these things change. And I, I think a lot of the times I feel like a lot of folks in the research community feel a little timid, right? Because we know how much we don't know. And that can sometimes be a blocker to us trying to move something forward or take a point of view because we don't have as much information as we'd like. But I think it's okay. Like we're a supportive community. People are going to say you're wrong about things and hopefully a polite way. And then, like I said, everybody learns. That's right. And it's interesting to me, right? You're talking about how researchers tend to, and you know, not to put everyone in the same group, but it, you're in it to learn. And so there's this um, humility to that, this kind of starting off point of, I'm just going to assume I don't know everything. Um, but you're saying in addition to that, why not start with an opinion uh, even if you're going to be wrong later. Um, and it seems to me that the value of that is uh, 
not only can it be useful to have a sort of straw man out there for everyone to react to and to bait and to try to validate or, or not, but to figure out your own thinking, right. And to kind of lay your assumptions bare as opposed to keeping them quiet where they can maybe be more dangerous. Um, have you found that to be the case? Yeah. I mean, I think that's, that's totally spot on. I think, um, it's interesting. I was having a conversation at work the other day and we're, we're building a, a new product and it's super hard and there's a tremendous amount of uncertainty. And we're having this conversation with the engineering team and they're like, well, we don't want to be idle. Like there's things that, you know, we want to be building things. How much certainty do you need in order for us to build this out? And there's a whole bunch of factors that play into this. I said, basically like, we don't need like a hundred percent certainty about what we're making. We don't even need 80% certainty. I'm just saying, I'm not, passing any requirements onto you unless I have like 15% certainty, right? 20% certainty. I just need to know what we're even doing. And sometimes that's hard when you're making something new. And I think, like, so it's, it's not about starting off with an opinion based on nothing. It's a lot of times, like even just our own experiences are good starting points, right? There's information there. There's evidence there. Now it's not the most sound in the world it's not like you designed an experiment and run it and and that's your starting point but i think again i think that's that's okay to start with 10 percent of the information to put a claim out there again welcoming criticism welcoming different points of view even something as simple as well that worked in this context but there's a whole bunch of other contexts that this won't work and here's why i think that's a really healthy thing um and the, even at our conference, I know there were talks that um, people did not that did not people did not necessarily agree with. Mm-hmm. Right? They came out of that, and and that's a really healthy thing. Right? Uh, you know, either you end up with a more informed reasons for why you think what you think. Right? You found those arguments not very persuasive, but now you know a, you know what the other a better understanding of what the other side of the coin is. Or you changed your mind because you found it very persuasive and, and now you're you're open to new ideas. Like it's there's no there's no loss there. But we just have to get comfortable with being incorrect, with mm-hmm. being wrong. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of the time we like <laughs> being right because we spend all our time digging digging into evidence and, and coming up with points of view based on a lot of inf- information that we spend time gathering and whatnot. Like Right. Sometimes yeah. it's just okay to be wrong. Yeah, you're sort of one-upping the old uh, get comfortable being uncomfortable mantra. It's like, no, like be comfortable being wrong. <laughs> you know, I think, yeah, okay, uncomfortable, fine. I can do that as long as I'm not wrong, God forbid. So yeah, I, I like that kind of one-upping the I stakes. I feel like an undercurrent of all this, yeah. right, is um, humans are not good at like imagining the fact that some of our current assumptions or things we take as fact might turn out to be incorrect, right? Mm. Um, which is weird because if you think back just a few years and you do it in like health or any other, you know, nutrition, it's like, can you believe that we thought it was a good idea to put BPA in water bottles or that people used to think smoking was healthy or whatever, right? It seems so obvious in hindsight. Um, but there's definitely things that we do right now that we don't know are bad, right? And two years from now, five years from now, we'll look back and be like, man, I can't believe in 2019, we thought it was okay to blank. Um, and what you were just saying with like methods and the evolution of, you know, having a defined script versus being a little bit more improv in some of the sessions and like how that's evolved, you know, in the span, in a pretty short span, it's like, there are things we're doing today within the research, you know, the research world that in a few years from now, we're going to look at and say like, man, I can't believe you used to do it that way. 
and what are those things? And so to find them, I think you're going to have to challenge and, and get some stuff wrong and push on the edges. But it's, you know what I mean? I don't know if that makes sense, but like we just, it's just something humans aren't good at. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, it's funny with the script thing, because this, this was uh, like, this was earlier in my research career, but it was like a hill I was willing to die on. I was pretty sure <laughs> that scripts were bad for research. I mean, obviously there's context in which that's not true. So I'll offer that caveat. Um, but I, I remember going in and I was as actually as a participant and I was like uh, for a research project um, and these people had a script. They were building this new website for this program that I was a part of. And I had joined the program uh, in, as a startup program and they were going through their script and asking me questions after, you know, they showed me sort of like this prototype and whatnot. And it came to the end of the session and I couldn't help but feel like none of the things that I thought were important were, were even talked about, right? Like all those questions that you asked, maybe you had reasons for asking them, but the things that, that really mattered to me and that I thought was useful information to have for what they were building never entered the conversation. And so I just like at the end of it said, okay, <laughs> cool, but I like this program and I want to see you guys be successful. So here's like a five minute rant of what I actually care about and think. And I think that was far more, I think, I don't know. I don't know. Could be wrong here. But I think that was more useful than the scripted questions that we had, right? Because every question you have is like, you, if you put it on the agenda, you have a point of view that it's important, right? And a lot of the time in research, we don't know yet what's important. And that's why we do this qualitative, contextual inquiry, whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, that was that was one thing. And I mean, I don't know if this will be end up being something that I'm right about in the long term, or again, in some scenarios, yes, in some scenarios, no. But I just remember at the time being like, I'm pretty confident about this, but who am I to write that? Yeah, I guess there is the, there's the meta piece of you could be wrong about (laughs) being wrong, I suppose, right? If we want to get really loopy on it. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I mean, that's the, (laughs) I could be wrong about this point of view that I have, but I'm, I'm, I'm happy to be wrong, right? Like, you know, maybe there is this natural progression of, of knowledge and practice that is, is more thoughtful and that's the way we should be doing it. And maybe that's the consensus and I'm open to it, but I, I really think that we can, we can do better. I think we can do more um, by just getting comfortable with like being incorrect about things that we think. On that point, if you're trying something really new or, you know, whether it's a method or just like an idea about what's going on with your customers or whatever, um, with the idea that, um, you know, you're, totally self-actualized, right? And I know I might be wrong about this. Um, in terms of tactically, those are all important stakeholders we need buy-in from, right? Um, when you think about the risk of being wrong, uh, there's a, you might bruise your ego, you might look bad, you might you know suffer politically in your organization, all these like horrible things that could happen. Are you positioning these new things that you want to try as experiments as, Hey, I might be wrong here, but hear me out. Or are you kind of quietly doing this wacky stuff on the side? Do you have, what's your approach to getting some of this stuff that might be wrong out there and remaining effective? I mean, I would, I would, I think transparency is totally cool. Um, about this stuff. Uh, 
I think it's okay saying like, I, I, I'm, I really don't, I'm not super confident about this, but here's what I think. And here's how I want to move forward. And here's why we should do this. Like, um, there's not, I, I think it's, I've now I'm in a product role. I've seen, uh, I spent a lot of time research doing research in startups with like product people who have not figured it out, let's say, um, but one of the biggest challenges they have is they think they've figured it out. They think they understand it. They think that they have more knowledge than they do. And it's often what causes a lot of really poor choices. Um, you know, I worked in one company that none of the product managers spoke to one of their target users for like a year. Um, and they had like months and months of roadmaps, <laughs> like, Here's what feature we're going to build, then the next feature, then the next feature. And it doesn't acknowledge any of the uncertainty, any of the, the, the limitations to like what human beings can know when you're doing something new. So from my point of view, it's, it's saying, here's what I think, here's why I think it, and here's what I want to do. And yeah, this could be wrong. And, but this is how we learn. This is how we get better as an organization, as a product team, as a group, as a whatever. And if you get a lot of pushback on that, it's probably not a healthy, the healthiest place in the world to work, I would guess, right? Because if everybody around you thinks they know everything already, what, as a researcher, what are you even doing there, right? Like, they already have all the answers they want. What value are you bringing to the table? Yeah, for sure. It's a, it's a good so. question, right? Not, not much, it seems. This whole topic feels like an area where there's a lot of lessons to learn from like other creative disciplines. Uh, what comes to mind, right, is like exercises you see people do, whether it's like writing and you give people a list of nouns that they have to use or photography and you make them do different weird techniques as an exercise or, you know, painting and you're using different materials. Like it feels like other creative areas, part of the learning process is, you know, intentionally trying to force you to do things in non-standard ways and, um, just like force yourself to create output and try new techniques and see what happens um, because it's, a, you know, they're disciplines that really value novelty and, and new approaches and new perspectives. And, you know, not all of those things are going to apply to user research, but it does feel like there's probably exercises or things that you could structure just to like almost force people to be creative or, or force people to try to do things in a, in a novel way. Um, and maybe that helps people, you know, get comfortable with it. I don't know if that's, you know, early in careers and you, and you make it part of the training or, it's something teams do as exercises periodically, um, mixed in with their more traditional approaches that, to take care of the day-to-day work. Um, but I don't know if that makes sense, but it feels like there's lessons to learn from, from other areas here that where, where they really value this type of stuff. Yeah, totally. I mean, um, do you guys do retros at user interviews like every week or every other week or something? We like do. That? Yeah, we do. Um, we do a full team one every month, which is really cool. So people who are not in the you know product development side of things get to say their piece just about the company at large, and then we do every two weeks within you know the product dev design kind of trio. And and do you guys use like um, you have like columns like happy, sad, glad, or start, stop, continue, and you put stickies up and all that stuff, or? Is it just more? Um, we're fully remote, so we do uh, we do the virtual sticky sort of, but um, we kind of collect responses uh, through a yeah. Google form and then cluster some responses, you know, into areas and let people kind of speak, say their piece, and call out trends and kind of dive into areas. So um, similar, but you know, just different tools. Yeah, I mean, I think retros are a really interesting sort of case study. Um, for, you know, for, for, for researchers and for people in general about like 
the importance of trying new ways of doing the same thing. So, you know, for me in my role, like there's a few people that I have regular one-on-ones with um, on the product team. And, you know, we'll talk about like, you know, what are the challenges that are going on? What's going well, what's not all this kind of stuff. And it's this one-on-one conversation. We have a great relationship. It's all good. Yet, sometimes it takes like a retro where we're saying, okay, we want to have a column of things that we're sad about and a column of things that we're mad about to actually have people feel comfortable to like write these things down and talk about them. And it's the same thing. Like it's, it, there's nothing different between it being like conceptually between it being like a one-on-one versus it being a retro style of thing. It's just a different way of approaching it, but the information that it produces and the benefit to our team is like super high when we take the time to have this different kind of structure to the approach of we're going to talk about things we're happy about, upset about, and uh, and sad about. And we're going to take 10 minutes and we're going to write these things down. And then we're going to like talk through them all one at a time as a group. Yeah, I think it's... Like think about what that says. Yeah, I think right? it's one of the best meetings we have, to be honest. And it started as a whole company thing largely just because there was only six of us and it felt weird to exclude two people from the you know product and dev one. So we just did it company-wide. And um, we've had a lot of great changes, honestly, of how we all interact and how the team kind of communicates and, and a bunch of other areas that have come from those comments. Um, so it's been, it's been super cool. We've even had a, we've had a retro of the retro, which is one of my favorite many meta moments. <laughs> yeah, we're very good at What's meta going stuff. well about that? What's going well with the retro? It's not. So we've we've mixed up the retro format too. <laughs> That's awesome. But I mean, even the principle of it, or just like the way, you know, you can get feedback in a one-on-one setting and that is not as comprehensive and is not often as insightful as doing one of these retros where you have this kind of structure to it. What does that teach us about research methods, right? You know, we're so focused a lot of the times on user interviews, right? No nice reference, intended. yeah. Um, uh, <laughs> uh, on user interviews on, you know, a lot of these like sort of like more standard ways of gathering information. But um, even at, at the conference, one of our speakers was talking about these like plotting exercises that, that she's done with um, attendees right, or, or sorry, participants and how she's used them in order to get a better understanding of how people's lives look. Right. It's the same sort of like, you know, it's still two people in a room, but instead of someone typing on a computer furiously and notes or like, you know, whatever it is, they're like at a whiteboard together and they're producing an artifact together. And it makes it easier sometimes to talk about some of the nuances and like what your experience. That's really cool. Research point. Do you have um, things within user research right now that you think we're doing wrong or we're wrong on? Do you have like a hit list of areas that you know, you might have a non-standard point of view on it. The script run was a big one um, for me in the past. I'll tell you, maybe the, I'll tell you something that I was thought I was right about, but I was definitely <laughs> nice. super wrong about. <laughs> this was early, earlier in my career, but I was pretty convinced that the only method that really mattered was like user interviews, right? Like the only thing that actually you know, like surveys were stupid, you know, they're poorly designed and poorly used and whatnot. And, um, a lot of these like, you know, testing tools with people you didn't know was bad because you didn't have their historical context. I was pretty convinced that literally the only thing that mattered was getting in a room and talking to somebody. 
that's since come around. I'm saying like that is a wrong, that is not a correct point of view. However, what I learned from that was that I, I put more emphasis and value on understanding sort of like people's contexts before you talk to them. Like it didn't make sense to me that you would ship out a product or a prototype or whatever it is to somebody who you had no idea who they were. You had no idea what their familiarity with technology was, whether they understood what you're doing, whatever, to get feedback. That made no sense to me, right? And there are some very successful, financially successful businesses that do this, right? And and it was very, it's a very common practice to like design something or build something and ship it out to a bunch of strangers that you don't know anything about. And that seemed like crazy to me. So I think that part I still feel right about, but you know, I used, but that just the, it was like totally like surveys are valuable tools. They're just <laughs> often used very poorly. Right. And my point of view of that, they're bad tools was definitely wrong. Definitely wrong. <laughs> yeah. I think a, a, an important piece too of, um, if you're willing to be wrong and so you have this initial opinion and then, you know, sometime later you have a different point of view on that same topic if you don't take the time to explain to people like what information and what data helped you change your mind and evolve your perspective, it does kind of come across a little bit as like a flip floppy type thing of last, you know, last month, this guy was talking about this thing and now he's talking about this and like, he's just so inconsistent. Um, whereas if you take the time to at least take people on that journey of, I thought this because of these assumptions, I learned these other things. And now I believe this, I think you actually come across as like much more credible and, and people want to, you know, work with people like that who are open to changing their minds when they have new evidence. But if you don't share the evidence or share how that evolution happened, um, I think people can have a pretty different reaction to the fact that you've like changed your mind, if that, if that makes sense. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I, th I think the whole, uh, you know, I don't want to be wrong as a researcher because I might lose credibility with my colleagues. Like I don't buy that for one second, right? Like, your job is to is to figure out really mysterious, enigmatic, hard problems, questions. Um, like if you're batting a hundred percent on all your like points of view, like you're not you're not trying hard enough, right? You're working on stuff that's too easy, um, you know. And as as like qualitative research is really well suited to solving these really hard, you know, messy, wicked problems. And if, if you're not struggling with any of these things and you're just able to figure it all out that fast, like, you know, are you really adding that much value? Are you really making a dent? I, I don't think so. And taking people along that journey helps them, like you were saying, it helps them understand how to think, which is even more important than what the actual results of your study is, right? You know, how do we, how do we even, before we even do any research, like we should try and have a point of view of like what kind of information would help us make a decision or help us figure out what the next step is. And sometimes it's, it's totally fine to say, look, this is just such a new project. We don't even know. We just need to talk to people in this space and, and listen to what we hear. But oftentimes you actually can say, you know, well, we want to know, is this onboarding experience uh, consistent and clear and easy to understand, right? Like, so there's an evaluation, an evaluative part of the onboarding experience. We want to make sure that we understand this person's historical experience with these kinds of products before they even see it, right? You know, like you can pull those pieces out. Um, and as you walk them through how you're building a framework to evaluate or test or whatever it is that you're working on, and it comes back and, you know, you're wrong about X or you're wrong about Y, then 
it's very easy to understand how, again, you've created a lot of value. You've improved everyone's understanding of what they're working on. And now you just get to, you know, make amends and take the next step and build that, that knowledge base. Like, I don't think there's any chance you can lose credibility with, with uh, your colleagues by just like doing your job honestly and intentionally and trying to push the boundaries. Agreed. Thanks for listening to Awkward Silences, brought to you by User Interviews. Theme music by Fragile Gang. Editing and sound production by Carrie Boyd. <laughs>